You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people He favours. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see Jesus, your extraordinary King, our Saviour, Messiah and Lord. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Was the year? It was the year 2000. Nokia had just released its 3310. Sony had just released a PlayStation 2. And some of you here, including Roy Chen, were just being born. Uh, and that year, in the year 2000, my school was hosting a night of the notables. A night of the notables. It was uh, one night where every student in year eight would dress up as the notable person of the past, someone that they would like to be in the future. Now, can I tell you, that night, it was amazing, really. I must have met about 10 future prime ministers, uh, the next Leighton Hewitt, and that one boy band that would surpass NSYNC. Every ordinary kid, they wanted to be someone notable. Every ordinary kid wanted to be someone extraordinary. But I wonder, can you guess who no kid chose to be? Who wasn't there at the night of the notables? An auditor at a professional services firm? A, a dentist at a suburban clinic? Or, or a teacher at a local school? You see, ironically, none of us chose to be what we would actually one day be. No one wants to be ordinary. You see, everyone wants to be extraordinary. And yes, our mothers came to us and said, Johnny, you're very, very special. The truth is that, let's face it, many of us, apart from that one guy in my year who went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, fall far short of the notables that we hope to be. But I mean, who could blame us, right? We, we were just ordinary kids. I wonder... What if Jesus was a kid at the night of the notables? What, what if he was standing there alongside the rest of us ordinary plebs? I mean, surely he, of all people, would stand out as extraordinary, right? I mean, he would just dress up as himself. In the Christmas carol, Away in a Manger, we sing, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's not really true, is it? I mean, like, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus never cried as if he were some sort of superhuman baby. You see, if Jesus was standing alongside the rest of us kids at the night of the notables in the year 2000, let's face it, there would be nothing notable about him. Jesus was an ordinary kid. In every way, he was just like us. And yet, in every way, he was also nothing like us. You see, the greatest Christmas miracle is that Mary's ordinary kid is actually God's extraordinary king. None of us, or very few of us, have grown up to be the extraordinary, extraordinary notables that we hoped to be. But this ordinary kid, the son of a young mum and a tradie for a dad, no, he became the king of heaven and the crux of history. 
Keep your Bibles open with me at Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at this together. Caesar Augustus, the, the founding emperor of the great Roman Empire. So here is a notable. Here is someone truly extraordinary. We need to understand, this isn't just any Caesar. Like This is the Caesar who united the Roman Empire, who secured the Pax Romana, the 200 years of peace. It was under his rule that the empire extended from Syria to Spain and reached up to one-third of the world's then population. You see, this was so great a king that the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome was actually named after him. It was called the Pax or the Peace of Augustus. So extraordinary was this king that this was his official title, the Commander King, the Son of God. What a title. Caesar personified power. He symbolized success. You see, this man, he was the embodiment of all our ambitions, that the law partner that we all want to work under, the entrepreneur we all want to emulate, the success story we all want to be like. You see, our mothers, they would look at Caesar and say, boy, God, one day be like him. Caesar Augustus, he represents the extraordinary success that every mother would want for their child. He is the king of the earth. And it's in the shadow of his greatness that Jesus is now born. And in verses 4 to 7, we see that Jesus cuts a very different image. Jesus is born to Joseph and Mary, an ordinary couple. He's born in Nazareth, a pretty ordinary place. And he's laid in a manger. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word manger, but you might have that nativity scene at Woolies in your mind where everything's quite clean and sanitized. But a manger is a dirty feeding trough for animals. It's like placing your newborn child into your dog's kennel. This is not an insta-worthy birth. This is the birth of a really ordinary kid, a forgettable child, just like the thousands of other children born throughout the Roman Empire at that time. You see, in his birth, Jesus is he's like that kid at school that everyone forgets. Do you remember him? Of course not, nobody does. Caesar is the unforgettable, extraordinary somebody. But Jesus is born as the forgettable, ordinary, nobody. And yet somehow, it's this very child, this forgettable, ordinary child, whom the angels now declare to be the king of Israel. Look at what happens in verses 8 to 14. An angel of the Lord appears to shepherds who are out in the fields, and he declares in verse 10, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people, that is for Israel. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. You see, Jesus, this forgettable, ordinary, nobody, the child of a remarkably unspectacular couple, is somehow the king of Israel. As their saviour, he will rescue them from sin, from judgment and from death. 
as their Messiah, which means their Christ, their good and gracious King. He will rule them with peace and justice. And as their Lord, He will represent Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who saved them out of Egypt, out of Babylon, and now out of death. You see, Jesus is the King of Israel, the one for whom God's ancient people have waited all their lives. But He is far more than just that. He is also the King of heaven. Look at verse 13. A multitude of the heavenly hosts suddenly appear. I've been saying heavenly host my whole life, never realizing what it actually meant. It's an army of angels, and they appear praising their king. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. You see, Jesus isn't just the king over one people. No, he's the king over all creation. He is the king of heaven. My gosh, just imagine parent-teacher night. Jesus' teacher asked Mary, so what do you see as the future career path for your son? Maybe he might grow up to be like his dad, a trader, a carpenter. But proud as punch, Mary sits there and goes, no, my kid, he'll be the king of heaven. And the teacher rolls their eyes thinking, oh, another one of those parents. See, friends, I wonder if you can see that there's two realities going on here. On, On a superficial level, Jesus is this ordinary baby born in the shadow of the world's most extraordinary king. And yet on a deeper level, this ordinary baby is a king infinitely more extraordinary than Caesar will ever be. The world, they look at Caesar and they see the emperor of Rome. But we look at Jesus, born in a cattle trough, and we see the king of heaven. Born thy people to to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. The question for us is, do we have the eyes to see it? Right? Which reality do you see? Do you see what I see? Because if you do, you will realize that we can't ignore Jesus. We can't simply dismiss him as an ordinary child, another boy, another faith, another religion. Nor can we relate to him on our terms as if we were humoring some young child. No, we must bow before this ordinary kid and worship him as God's extraordinary king. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, now, Adam, why would Jesus come as a child at all? I mean, surely if he wanted the world to know him as king, he'd just come as a king. Wouldn't it be easier for everyone to trust him if he just came and wiped out Caesar, right? It'd be a lot more straightforward. At least then everyone would see him and no one would doubt him. But if Jesus came in a visible show of extraordinary power, he would just be yet another Caesar. But he's not. Jesus comes as an ordinary kid so that he might save ordinary people. People like you and me. That's why the angel of the Lord, who does he appear to? He appears to shepherds. Now we've got to understand, shepherds, they're not the ducks of the school, they're not the dean scholars of university, they're, they're the rejects. They're the failures, they're the outcasts. If Caesar embodies the extraordinary, the shepherds, well, you couldn't get more ordinary than that. 
If our mothers would say, aspire to be successful like Caesar, they'd also say, don't go anywhere near shepherds like them. And yet they are the very ordinary people to whom God appears. They are those who, verse 14 says, are favored by God, not Caesar. Jesus comes as an ordinary kid so that he might save an ordinary people. And so he redefines what it means to be great what it means to be successful, and what it means to be extraordinary. He accepts the rejects, and he sends them out rejoicing. You see, friends, just like Jesus, the the ordinary kid, you and I, we live in the shadow of a world that defines success by achievement. Success is the perfect score, the medical degree, the elite career, the picture-perfect wedding. We want to be like Caesar and nothing like the shepherds. We want the world to sing glory to us in the highest heaven. But the truth is that many of us here are more like shepherds than we are like Caesars. Many of us simply cannot hide our weakness, whether it's in our family life, our our studies, our career, or our health. There is a sense in which we can't help but feel slightly less. There is a sense in which we can't feel excluded and on the outer from all our friends who seem to be doing perfectly well. Now you might go, well, actually, I'm doing pretty well. (laughs) But some of us appear successful on the outside. But on the inside, we know how broken we really are. The tragedy for many of us is that we look like Caesars, but we feel like shepherds, as all of us are. On the outside, we're praised for winning in life, but on the inside, we know how messed up we really are. And the hope of Christmas is that Jesus came to save shepherds, not Caesars. We don't have to be popular. We don't have to be successful. We don't have to be the notable children that we aspire to be. Because true success is found in a trough, not a throne. In a cross, not a crown. You see, Jesus comes as an ordinary kid. So that he might save remarkably ordinary people. If you don't mind me saying, people like you and me. The question is, do we have the eyes to see it? Do we see Jesus as he really is? Or maybe, do we see ourselves as we really are? Because if we have the eyes to see how ordinary we really are, we will have the eyes to see how extraordinary Jesus really is. Now you might think that this ordinary kid being the king of heaven is a bit much. That's enough to believe, but I want to tell you that there's so much more. Because it's only half the picture in today's passage. For in the second half of this chapter, we see that Jesus is also the crux of history. That the very story of our world, it reaches its climax in the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's salvation plan right throughout the Old Testament. That's what we find here in verses 21 to 24. You see, Jesus' birth is entirely consistent with how God has acted in the Old Testament. Whether it's being circumcised on the eighth day, or or offering a sacrifice of dedication at every single point, he fully satisfies the law of Moses. Yet it's true, Jesus is doing something fundamentally new. 
but he's not doing anything unexpected. It's not like he's coming and overturning the Old Testament so much as he is fulfilling it. Sometimes it's easier, right? We read our Bibles and we kind of think that the Old Testament is God's plan A. God sets out to save the world. He chooses a people called Israel. He gets two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It all goes pear-shaped, hits the fan, and he goes, oh, no, I've got to choose Jesus, plan B. But that's not how the story goes. Jesus was always plan A. Jesus was always the climax of God's master plan for this world. Jesus was always the point. It was always God's plan to send his extraordinary king as an ordinary kid. So you can imagine, right, all of human history waiting for this birth, all of human history waiting for this moment. Time itself has been building and building as the weight of eternity now bears down on this moment. I mean, we all know the feeling of waiting to celebrate Christmas. When we were younger, it was the feeling of looking at that Christmas present under the tree saying, oh, I just want to unwrap it. And now for many of you, it's the feeling of looking at annual leaves saying, I just can't wait to get there. Well, just imagine how desperately God's people were waiting, not for a year, not even for a few weeks, waiting for 400 years since God last spoke to welcome their king. And we find that desperate longing in the stories of two elderly Israelites, Simeon and Anna. Look at verse 25. We read that Simeon has been waiting his whole life looking forward to Israel's consolation, Israel's comfort, Israel's salvation. He was longing for God to deliver on his promise, to send his king, to comfort his people and save them from their enemies. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 40, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, anticipated the day on which his people would be comforted. He spoke of a day on which they'd be saved and comforted and forgiven. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You see, Simeon was longing for this moment, the crux of history, the point at which everything would change. He is longing for the climax of God's plans. But he's been longing his whole life. It's been a long wait. And Simeon's now an old man. And you have to wonder, right, over all these years, has Simeon ever doubted God's promise? Has there been even one moment where he's gone, oh, I'm just not sure whether God will pull through? You know, for 28 years, the Berlin Wall ran as a scar through the face of Europe. Geographically and politically, it was called the Iron Curtain. It separated East and West Berlin. But it separated far more than just that. It separated families. It deprived mothers of their newborn children. Can you just imagine, right? You've just had your newborn child. The Berlin Wall is about to be erected. And then the government takes you away and separates you from your child. And for 28 years, you wait. You wait to see the face of your child who you have not seen since she was an infant. And then on the 9th of November, 1989, 
to great fanfare as the whole world was watching, the wall was torn down. One German described the moment like this. It was like Easter, Christmas and New Year's all rolled into one. Or in the words of one elderly German widow, finally, freedom came to me. That desperate longing for freedom, that's exactly what Simeon would be feeling. And imagine this, in verse 28, he takes up in his arms this ordinary, forgettable kid. And he is holding Israel's consolation. He is holding the freedom of the world. As he holds this little child, this is his Berlin Wall moment. But there's no army There's no parade, there's no media. There's just an old man in a temple holding an ordinary kid in his arms. You see, friends, if you don't have the eyes to see it, you might just miss it. You might just see an ordinary kid and be just a little bit disappointed, like the Christmas present you've been waiting for for the last year, and then you open it and you realize it's socks. You see, Simeon might be old and his sight might be fading, but of all people, he sees the most clearly. He recognizes that this ordinary child is the crux of history. For who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? The giver of life is born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. And that's exactly what this ordinary kid will do. In in verses 30 to 32, we see that he'll be the salvation for all peoples. And that includes both Jews and Gentiles. You see, Jesus, he's the hope of every tribe. He's the hope of every longing heart. And I want to let you know that that means that who Jesus is really matters. And it matters to absolutely everyone. Don't think that Christmas or Jesus have nothing to do with you. No, Jesus is the crux of human history, of your history. He came to save all peoples, and all peoples includes you and me. Don't dismiss this ordinary kid. There is, of course, a sharper edge to this story. In verse 34, Simeon tells Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You know, every parent thinks that the whole world revolves around their child. But in this case, Mary's actually right. It actually does. Humanity will fall on one side or other of this kid. All of us will stand on one side or the other of this crux of history. Jesus will be the fault line of human history. And here's the tragedy. Some will not see him for who he really is. Some will look at Jesus. Some will look at Christianity. Some will look at the gospel and just think, an ordinary kid. I'd much rather follow Caesar, the extraordinary king. And those people will oppose this child. Indeed, some people in Luke's gospel will oppose him even to the point of killing him. They will nail him to a cross. And yet it is in his death that Jesus saves this world. He dies a criminal's death in the place of criminals like us. 
He, he dies in our place, which He clearly doesn't deserve, to give us the life which we clearly don't deserve. You see, both in His birth and in His death, the King of Heaven achieves something extraordinary through something so ordinary. He is born an ordinary kid to save an ordinary people. He dies a sinner's death to save a sinful people. The real question is, do you and I have the eyes to see it? Do we see that the ordinary child is actually the hope of humanity, the, the king of heaven and the crux of history? Do we see in this ordinary kid God's extraordinary king? Well, so I want to let you know that if we see him as he is, everything in your life changes absolutely everything. Because, my gosh, here's the crux of history, of world history, of my history, of your history, and that means He fills our whole world with meaning. It means that every moment of every day, both the bad and the good, both the ordinary and the extraordinary is full of purpose. It means that there's a story to this world, and that story is all about Jesus. It's the story of how He came as a human to save humanity. The story of how He died a sinner to save sinners. The story of how He rose from the grave to defeat death once and for all. This is the story of God's extraordinary plan to rescue an ordinary people. Human history, which you and I now live in, is the story of God's rescue plan. It is the story of Jesus. It is quite literally His story. And that means that our lives are full of meaning, right? If we align ourselves and align our individual stories with God's grand narrative, we should be making every decision with one question in mind. How will my life fit in with the story of Jesus? How do my decisions about marriage, work, friendship and study all align with God's grand purposes to save the world through Jesus? Am I making this decision about marriage, about relationships, about friendship, about career, about work, about study, so that the world might sing glory to me or so that it might sing glory to God in the highest heaven? When we live with Jesus as our extraordinary King, we'll make decisions that will be awfully surprising to this world. Because just like Jesus' own birth, our lives may look awfully ordinary, but if we have the eyes to see it, our ordinary lives will be truly extraordinary. Just think about it. Simeon spent his whole life waiting for a Messiah. And to everyone else, that might seem like the most ordinary waste of a life. But the moment he holds that child in his arms, Simeon's life of waiting is not wasted. It becomes something truly extraordinary. My gosh, he gets to hold the hope of humanity in his arms. How will you fit your life into the story of Jesus? Will you embrace an ordinary life in the eyes of this world? so that you might exchange it for something far more extraordinary? Will you be like the shepherds who may have been rejected by this world, but who rejoiced 
at the birth of their king. Every year, every single year without fail, in the first week of December, I praise God. Because I remember back to 2006 when I got my high school score as an enter. And I look back to the last two weeks when high school students were receiving their scores all over again. And I say, thank God it's not me. <laughs> but you look around and you see people, and what do we all say? We tell them, don't worry. Your ATAR is just a number. It won't matter in the end. If only you could see what really counts. We're all trying to give them a reality check, a perspective shift. We're all trying to zoom them out a little bit to see this one number. is just a small part in a much bigger life. Well, that's exactly what Luke is doing for us today. He's giving us the ultimate reality check, the historic perspective shift to zoom out and frame our whole lives as one part of a much bigger story. He's reminding us that whatever your troubles might be today, don't worry, it won't matter in the end. We just need to see what really counts. And what really counts is God's mission to save the world through Jesus. So whatever troubles might come our way, take heart. In the end, Jesus is the crux of history. And this is his story, the story in which he is king. Because when we stand before Jesus, I can promise you, he won't ask you what your ATAR was. He won't ask you what you studied at university. There's a sense in which he really couldn't care less what you did with a job. You'll stand before him and we will sing his glorious praises. All glory to him, not all glory to us. You see, at our point in history today, we're just like Simeon and Anna in one sense. We're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to return just as he once came. Just as God kept his promise that Jesus would come then, he will keep his promise that Jesus will come again. And even if we're like Anna, an elderly widow whose husband died young, our grief and our waiting is not in vain. Because we live suspended between two great events of human history, Jesus' first coming as an ordinary child and his second coming as an extraordinary king. And I can promise you, if you didn't see him for who he is then, you will see him for who he is tomorrow. The world will see what Simeon and Anna saw. Every tribe and every longing heart will see Jesus. God's extraordinary king. But let me plead with you. If you're going to see him as extraordinary king then, why not see him now? Why not follow him now? Why not praise him now? Let's pray. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favours. Give us eyes to see Jesus your extraordinary King, our Saviour, Messiah and Lord. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.